Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I am David Monda, and I am uh, the host for uh, this channel. Uh, This is a uh, podcast for the Gotham Center at um, the Graduate Center CUNY. And um, today we'll be talking to our guest, Rose um, Manzio. And she'll be telling us about her new book, Radical Imagination, Radical Humanity, uh, Puerto Rican Political Activism in New York. And I'm very excited about this book. And thank you very much, Rosa Muzio, for uh, being on our show today. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us uh, a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I am an associate professor at the State University of New York, Old Westbury, and currently the chair of the politics, economics, and law department there. Um, Raised in New York, uh, oddly enough, I was born in Alabama because my father was in the service there. So I came to New York when I was three months old and uh, grew up in, you know, Italian-American and Puerto Rican community. Uh, in Brooklyn, and then uh, also spent some years on Long Island. So I kind of lived in both places on and off. Um, And I've been a political activist for many years, went to graduate school at the Graduate Center. So I have my PhD from CUNY grad, and I believe that's where you now study, if I'm not mistaken, or teach. Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. This is very nice. Thank you so much for uh, for mentioning that. Mm-hmm. And um, how how does your background fit into your inspiration to write the book? I know you mentioned, you know, Alabama, and and you know, and you're living in the city. Did your how did that shape sort of your understanding or or your thinking in before you even came to writing the book? Well, uh, as I said, and I do mention in the book, uh, I was a political activist. I, you know, growing up in a working class uh, community, I was impacted by all of the conditions that, you know, people um, experience, struggles with, uh, you know, job security and, uh, you know, quality education, access to quality health care. And um, I was a member, actually, of this organization that I write about. Um, the organization was founded some years before I became a member. Uh, but I understood the organization existed for 10 years in the 1970s. And it was predominantly Puerto Rican It formed in the Upper West Side in the context of a community housing struggle, a tenant struggle. And, you know, I was I knew that this was an untold story, that the activism of people of color, of Puerto Ricans in particular, 
um, had not been adequately studied or represented in either popular or scholarly literature. Uh, and, you know, as a teacher, I mean, by, you know, I started teaching in 1992. Uh, I realized that, you know, many students come to us from high school knowing something about the civil rights movement, uh, but it's a very partial understanding. You know, they think of the civil rights movement as basically centered in the South and centered around, you know, individual heroes, uh, basically for voting rights or to end segregation. But uh, as I say, this is a partial understanding because we had so many civil rights struggles right here in New York. And when I say civil rights struggles, I mean, not only struggles against police brutality, uh, struggles for housing rights, for quality education, but for economic rights as well, for jobs uh, against racist exclusion from, you know, various jobs, exclusion from unions. So, uh, you know, this is a gap that I wanted to, to fill. In addition, I'll just say one other thing about motivations uh, the scholarly literature, the stories told about Puerto Rican activism um, that I read, you know, this is now in the 1990s, misrepresented uh, the scope, the breadth of Puerto Rican activism in New York um, by claiming that the Puerto Rican left or Puerto Rican activists were primarily concerned with independence for Puerto Rico and ignored uh, the needs and the interests of the Puerto Rican diaspora. And uh, that's a, that was a misconception. There's no doubt that many activists on the left were and continue uh, to be concerned with the colonial situation in Puerto Rico, but the activism that I write about uh, for democratic rights, for jobs, for better education and healthcare, um, was very much centered on the needs of, you know, Puerto Ricans in New York. Excellent. Yeah, that that's um, that's a good point. Where do you think that disconnect comes comes from? Is it just time? Is it just not in terms of attention to detail? Where does that where does that gap come from in terms of the, that misperception? Well, I think you know. Um, you know, many of the gaps have been filled in in the rec- in let's say the recent uh, ten, maybe even twenty years. But in the nineteen um, eighties and nineteen nineties, many of the stories of the left were written by white scholars, and I think there was just a broad, uh, you know, brush uh, that generalized about Puerto Rican activism in particular, you know, uh, uh, that, that made these assumptions. I, I do think it, it's just, uh, you know, an absence of, you know, deep dives into, you know, what was actually going on in communities of color. And, and in terms of, uh, you know, you mentioned your uh, alumnus of the uh, Graduate Center. Were there any faculty there or any student movements that inspired you? Was that a continuation of some of the connections you'd made at the GC? 
that and you know that built on your further activism or were you more of an activist after you graduated so my activism period as a student comes in my undergraduate years and that in fact was at the uh, college that I teach at right now uh, SUNY Old Westbury was a unique college within the SUNY system. And you know, it, it's located on Long Island, but I lived on the Lower East Side. And when SUNY Old Westbury formed in the late 60s, it was an experimental college. It was a school that was geared toward providing greater access to higher education for segments of society that were, you know, labeled the historically bypassed. What that meant essentially were, you know, people of color, were working class people, veterans. It was the time of the Vietnam War. Women, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, the numbers of women in, in school, you know, in, in college were far lower than they are today. And so SUNY Old Westbury was a place that was formed to try to make up for, you know, the historical uh, discrimination that had taken place. And so it recruited from the city. It recruited, its goal was to have, you know, diversity, a 30% white, 30% black, 30% Puerto Rican at the time. Today, we would say Latinx. Um, and that. And the, the college was a wonderful place. That's how I went there because there were recruiters in the city. Uh, but within the first few years of its founding, there was a great deal of resistance in Long Island to all these folks from the city coming out to this wonderful 600-acre campus. And so the college... Um, Students became embroiled in a battle to keep their access to the college as the college began to shift and try to limit access to that population. So, you know, I was a student there and I was involved in the student struggles. And, uh, you know, I became involved with this organization that I that I write about um, that was itself involved in struggles against gentrification, against police brutality, for uh, uh, better education and health care, etc. So that's how I became involved. I didn't go to graduate school until after the organization had uh, disintegrated, had um, dissipated you know, which happened to many of the radical organizations. By the 1980s, by the early 1980s, many of these uh, organizations that had fought uh, in communities of color across the nation um, themselves began to dissipate. You know, the, there was such a conservative shift in the political economy of the United States, and it really became harder and harder uh, to mobilize uh, resistance against some of the, um, you know, pushbacks. So uh, I didn't go to graduate school until, you know, after my political activism sort of, you know, died down along with the uh, disintegration of, of um, those kinds of organizations. 
And and uh, help our uh, our listeners understand a little bit about the the sort of the historical background and some of the binary dichotomies or multiple dichotomies as as we'd understand them of uh, of of Puerto Rico the independence versus a colonial domination the movements towards independence social activism the occupation of the island. Vieques. Um, how how did how did that sort of shape your understanding and your writing of of the book? Sort of the colonial legacy, first with the Spanish and then with the the American occupation. So I mean that is something you know when I say we were community activists, we were also learning a great deal about uh, U.S. imperialism at the time. Now, again, we're talking late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s. Um, And in the 1950s, there had been a large migration of Puerto Ricans from Puerto Rico to New York, to mainly New York. They went to other cities as well in the Northeast, but large concentration uh, in in, in New York. This occurred uh, through uh, a collaboration between the colonial government in Puerto Rico. I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, I just want to speak to the migration and how we became aware, uh, we became involved in the colonial uh, reality. Uh, lo- this large migration occurs as the colonial government tried to lure manufacturing jobs to Puerto Rico. And as a result, in which they did through this program called Operation Bootstrap, and that uh, resulted in the displacement of many people on the island, agricultural workers who were displaced, um, uh, those who could not be incorporated in large enough numbers into manufacturing and so they migrated to New York, lured by, you know, the possibility of better life like everyone. Um, but at the same time, in those years, in the late 50s and 60s, there were groups that were coming to New York to talk to people about the colonial reality of Puerto Rico. And by that, I mean that, yeah, Puerto Rico, like Cuba, uh, was a colony of Spain. It was colonized in the 1500s. And the United States acquired it uh, from Spain as a result of the Spanish-American War. Um, The United States acquired Cuba. Well, it didn't actually uh, have uh, uh, direct colonial occupation of Cuba. But Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines were acquired as colonies. And uh, the United States remains the colonial power in Puerto Rico, which means the island has a local government, uh, but, you know, they are subject to the U.S. Constitution. They are subject to federal law uh, and do not have voting rights for, you know, uh, federal government. They have no senators, They have one resident commissioner in the House of Representatives who is not a voting member, 
uh, but they cannot vote for president, uh, et cetera. And um, we learned about this, you know, in during the Vietnam War, this notion of U.S. imperialism was becoming more well understood by larger sectors of society. And in New York, you know, there were many demonstrations against the Vietnam War. And then, of course, you know, we learned about the Cuban Revolution, which was a, a source of inspiration for a lot of people. The idea of egalitarianism, you know, was obviously uh, very popular. Uh, and so, you know, the situation in Puerto Rico um, remains, you know, an unresolved contradiction uh, in a country that claims to, you know, uh, embrace democracy and yet, you know, imposes rule in Puerto Rico. Wow, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, so that, that then brings us to the, the sort of the political economics of, of, um, of, the, of Puerto Rico and, you know, the corporations that went into Puerto Rico um, and we'll talk a bit more about this towards the end, you know, of our conversation. Um, help our listeners understand the 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 the, ad, the ridiculous advantages that were afforded to some of these corporations, and how that has contributed to the impoverishment of Puerto Rico, of the island, and has led to this mass migration of its best and most brilliant human capital uh, onto the mainland of the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, I should just say that the book, my book does not focus on Puerto Rico, uh, on the political economy of Puerto Rico. Um, I'm not an expert. I can say that one of the things the uh, Puerto Rican government did, the local government, the colonial government, in cooperation with um, U.S. governmental agencies, was to provide wonderful tax benefits uh, to corporations. Um, the, the pharmaceutical industry was able to operate for years without paying taxes. Uh, certainly they did not have stringent environmental regulations. With regard to Vieques, uh, Vieques was particularly tragic in that it is a small island off the coast of Puerto Rico, which belongs to Puerto Rico, occupied primarily um, by people who fish for a living. And the U.S. Navy occupied the, the land and waters of Vieques from 1947 through 2003. And of course, the people of Vieques were never asked uh, for permission for the occupation. Um, But in the course of the occupation, many people were pushed back. A certain amount of land was cordoned off. Certainly much of the waters, the beautiful, pristine waters of Vieques uh, were used for uh, target practice. Uh, for underwater amphibian um, uh, exercises. Um, And, you know, there was a prolonged battle led by the fishermen of Vieques to uh, have the Navy leave, to um, 
oust the U.S. Navy from from Vieques. Eventually, the Navy did go, and you know, there's much debate about whether or uh, how much of the Navy's exit was due to, you know, the mobilizations, the activism, and how much was just due to the fact that the U.S. had finished whatever it wanted to do there. I mean, I think the activism was extremely important. You know, I tell uh, the story in the book. Uh, But, you know, today, uh, Puerto Rico, um, the local government uh, has been in debt that it cannot pay for a very long time, trying to provide just basic services. And the United States, as an example of the colonial status of Puerto Rico, the U.S. Congress uh, formed a board, an external board, to oversee the restructuring of Puerto Rico's debt. Um, And that restructuring involves austerity, the closing of schools, the uh, uh, firing of teachers, the firing of many uh, public sector workers in general. Uh, And so, yeah, we have a situation right now of, you know, maybe 30 to 40 percent of poverty on the island. Um, Yeah, large number of people, uh, food insecure, as we now say, politely uh, to mean hunger. Right. Uh, So. So, yeah, uh, Puerto Rico finds itself in a very, very difficult situation the local governments are often extremely corrupt. Uh, there was a huge movement on the island last year to oust the sitting governor, and they succeeded. Uh, that was Rosselló, uh, was ousted. Uh, but the replacement governor is not much better. And right now, Puerto Rico is going through its own electoral process, um, as we are here in the United States. But, you know, it is hindered by this uh, colonial status and desperate need for reforms in general, as we are. Excellent. And, and I think that's, that's a good place to segue and now think about, um, you know, your, 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 um, your correlation of all these dynamics in Puerto Rico and, and then how those uh, are then translated for, you know, to... El Comité and some of the operation moving and some of the making of a political movement in New York. Um, you know, you relate some of the collaborations between Latinos and African-Americans and some of the dynamics around gentrification um, and some of the unfair uh, uh, practices by landlords um, could you walk us through some of the uh, dynamics around Operation Moving and some of the structures around uh, um, El Comité? Sure. So, uh, and uh, what I'd like to do is, you know, speak briefly to that and then, you know, try to make some connections to what we continue to experience today in New York City. Uh, because that's what I think is the importance. You know, I think we have historical amnesia sometimes in this country. And it's, you know, easy to kind of look at the um, 
super gentrification we have today in New York City and think this was just some sort of evolutionary process of some market phenomenon um, that occurred and it's natural that it occurs and communities change, etc. Um, but, you know, the history of El Comité, you know, tells us that no, you know, gentrification was a collaboration between the city and real estate developers and the finance industry in New York in the 1970s. And at Comité, you know, many of those, many of the people who formed this organization were the young people who came to, from Puerto Rico uh, in the 50s and 60s, more, more in the 60s. And, you know, some of them knew of, you know, the colonial um, situation. Many did not. But what they experienced when they came here was marginalization and, you know, pushed into very low wages, you know, working in kitchens, working as waiters, working in light industry, driving gypsy cabs, you know, cabs in parts of the city where yellow cabs didn't want to go, Um, you know, living in overcrowded housing that was under, uh, under maintained or, or just completely, uh, you know, abandoned, Uh, living in terrible conditions that I describe in the book, you know, crowded uh, conditions and often paying higher than average rents which is, you know, a huge contradiction. And they find themselves side by side with African-Americans. And, you know, the Operation Move-In that I talk about was just one example, albeit, you know, a a huge example and, and a very successful one, but one example of squatters' movements in the city in the late 60s and 70s to try to push back on what the city was calling urban renewal, which activists, people in communities knew to be urban removal. In other words, what the city's proposals uh, did in effect, what the city's actions to bring new development and renovation to neighborhoods in effect displaced or aimed to displace thousands upon thousands of families. And so, or, you know, even when the city promised to reserve some portion of new housing development for low-income or middle-income families, uh, the fact is that the cost of those units were was too high. Um, and so, you know, there were many, many battles. El Comité emerged spontaneously just because they lived in the neighborhood and you know there were bursts of anger uh you know there was an incident where you know a little boy died of uh carbon dioxide poisoning a uh, carbon monoxide poisoning sorry and uh there were demonstrations in the street and gradually that became more organized um you know and they formed uh operation move it and they got support from tenant ad- advocates and they occupied buildings and they refused to leave. Um, the battle ensued for more than a couple of years. 
there were ups and downs, you know, I won't go into every, you know, detail, but uh, let's just say that by and large, they were able to, the activists were able to secure a number of buildings, to keep a number of buildings that the city eventually signed over to them as cooperatives. Uh, But in the longer term, uh, gentrification proceeded as we know it today. And, you know, I would just use the example of my my home uh, in Williamsburg, that we are surrounded. My house is one of the last remaining houses. Um, We are surrounded by these high-rise buildings where developers were able to get zoning variances and from the city and you know the city poured vast resources into the neighborhood to improve parks you know to to plant trees to beautify the neighborhood for the enjoyment of people who have very substantial resources and working people have been pushed out and this is the tragedy of of new york i think and many other cities that are undergoing, you know, the same uh, processes. So would would the the occupation um, things like uh, you know movements like Operation Moving? Do you feel if uh, organizations like uh, El Comité were still strong and active as they had been in the past, that some of the gentrification and high rises that we see today? Would have been reduced or, you know, eliminated? Well, I mean, that particular organization and many like it, you know, I have to say, you know, ran ran its course. I do think, you know, and, and you know, there are many reasons organizations form and dissipate. There is no doubt that collective um, mobilization, coll- organization, uh, is absolutely necessary. And I think we see a lot of that, I, you know, today. I mean, we see a resurgence of activism. I mean, this this is actually a very good time for this conversation because, first of all, uh, it is the 50th anniversary of the founding of El Comité, and so there are conversations going on, like uh, conversations like this going on, but it also, at this particular moment, we're having this conversation at the time of the pandemic, which has really crystallized many of the, those persistent conditions of racism and steep inequality uh, that people were fighting back then. And at the same time uh, that these conditions are crystallized, I think we're also experiencing a resurgence of Uh, of activism, of course, you know, the protests um, mobilized by Black Lives Matter and, you know, the climate justice movements, um, you know, the the multiracial protests that we've seen across this country, they're very, very important. But on the community level, yes, I do think people need to talk to each other and mobilize and not think that this, that there are individual solutions. You know, this uh, individualism in this country has, 
the idea of it, the idea that an individual can create uh, a fulfilling and safe and prosperous life alone, you know, is an absurdity. I mean, we, we, we see this around the, the, the whole battle, the battles of the masks, you know, there is such, we can't wear a mask because, you know, it, it, it inhibits freedom. Um, no, you know, it, it collective action can bring us um, prosperity as a society, I believe. That's what I would say. All right. Uh, good, good point. Good point. Um, and could you speak, you know, I, I know you'd mentioned a little earlier about a historical amnesia. Um, a lot of the move-in, operation move-in issues, the social justice issues are very much tied in with issues of immigration. Uh, could you speak up, speak to that specifically within this chasm of, um, you know, the Latino community? Because we know Puerto Ricans can come in and out of the U.S., but there's a lot of other Latino communities that don't have that, you know, ability and, you know, just face a lot of immigration bottlenecks and issues. How was it back then in terms of organizing with other Latinos, say, from Mexico or the DR, the Dominican Republic? Um, yes. And, and how did that tie into sort of the broader issues of uh, Operation Moving? Yeah, so I would say that um, I, I, I don't think there was a significant Mexican population in the city or South or Central American, you know, the Salvadorans uh, came in larger numbers in the eighties um, and nineties, especially during the civil war and Mexican population, I don't think was uh, significant in terms of numbers. Uh, the Dominican population was. And so uh, many Dominicans came in the mid sixties and came legally uh, the United States, you know, both. Uh, the United States had supported um, the uh, dictator in in the Dominican Republic, Trujillo. Mm-hmm. Trujillo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when Trujillo was killed, and unrest uh, ensued in the DR, um, the United States did allow for, you know, some. Uh, immigration from the Dominican Republic. And then even after, in the 80s, there were, uh, even under Reagan, there were family reunification policies uh, in in place. So, uh, yeah, there were Dominicans in the Upper West Side, and the Dominicans were very political. Um, But they had their own uh, organizations, um, MPD, the uh, popular Dominican movement, I guess, would be the the English. Um, and they lived in large numbers in the uh, Washington Heights. And so there was definitely support for the movement from the, the Dominican community for the movements, uh, the squatters movement. Um, there were Dom- a couple of Dominicans in El Comité, and so I would say the two Puerto Ricans and Dominicans were closely allied. Let's let's say that uh, politically. You know, today um, the question, the treatment 
of immigrants is, you know, another, in my view, uh, U.S. tragedy, right? Uh, policies at the border of uh, family separation are just, you know, um, inhumane, to say the least, uh, cruel. And the idea that people can come in legally or stand on the line um, is, is, I think, you know, just a myth. Uh, it's very, very hard to acquire a visa legally if you are in Central America or Mexico. And so, you know, we certainly need to uh, deal with our uh, immigration uh, contradictions as soon as possible so we can uh, stop the harm that we've been doing to families. And, and uh, in the mi- middle part of the book, you talk about uh, that shift from community organizing to radical politics. How much of that was uh, an offshoot to the anti-war demonstrations and, you know, the black power, red power and, you know, um, Latino organizing of the 70s? And how much was that also part of the economic deterioration and, and the effects of the war and the deficits created from that? Well, I can say that that transformation from a community organization to a more radical organization uh, was a process. Many factors um, were involved in that transformation. But, you know, I think we can group all of those factors under the rubric of political education, political maturity, right? The exposure, certainly from the very beginning, community activists, you know, even in the housing movement, um, you can see signs about uh, hanging from people's windows about things that were going on in Chile, right? Remember that uh, in 1970, again, they had, uh, was elected. He was a socialist. He was elected in Chile. And in 1973, he was overthrown by a military coup. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the Vietnam War was certainly a factor. The Black Power Movement, the Young Lords. And don't forget about the Young Lords. Yes. Who were on the you, mentioned, you, men- you mentioned them in the book. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the reasons, one of the motivations for writing the book is to redress to to confront the assumption also or the partial history that the young wards were the activist organization of the puerto rican community they were very important they were influential but they were short-lived and there were only one of several organizations and you know uh one of the reasons that groups like El Comité are not as well known as the Young Lords is because as they became more radical, as they became more left or more socialist, or as their critique became more of an anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist critique, they were subject to red baiting. They were subject to marginalization, right? Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. So in their community struggles, they would often not identify themselves as, hello, I'm a member of a radical organization called El Comité MIMP, and I am a socialist or, you know, whatever. I mean, they would not, they would just 
do the work of mobilizing, raising the issue, educating the community, fighting back against healthcare cuts, you know, and at the same time, they wrote, you know, they had a newspaper and they would seek to educate people about the larger political economy, the forces that are not necessarily as obvious or as visible, right? Um, You know, the forces of capitalism and, you know, greed and the accumulation of capital and the inequality, et cetera. So they sought to educate people, but about their larger critique and their vision, um, while at the same time fighting for reforms, you know, against hospital closings and, and, you know, all the things I've, I've mentioned before. And I think today we see a resurgence at the same time that the pandemic crystallizes, you know, these uh, inequalities. We also see a resurgence of interest uh, in socialism, in the idea of collective problem solving, mm-hmm. um, even if it's incremental, you know, problem solving that puts uh, people's needs above, you know, greed and profit and all the rest. All right. How was it organizing at that time? Um, was there, um, was, was El Comité, you know, was it a very egalitarian? Uh, were there sometimes tensions around gender roles and how were those uh, addressed? The, the role of women in the movement? Oh my. Okay. So how was it organizing? Um, and egalitarian. Okay, so those are several questions. Um, I, I want to say something about organizing. Um, we didn't have social media, obviously. And of course, one of the pros of that is that you can mobilize people, you know, without money, you don't need to print flyers. I mean, that's what we had to do. We had to print flyers and go door to door and collect quarters, you know, to put out a newspaper. Um, So it was definitely more labor intensive uh, than we have today. But social media does not replace the face-to-face work that it takes, right, to bring people together and, um, you know, to develop uh, strategies and tactics and a vision. You know, I don't think even today, there's anything that will replace that face-to-face organizing. We still have to do it. Egalitarianism. I mean, yeah, you know, all of the isms that we struggle to overcome exist within our families, right? Exist within our social circle, uh, social circles, our culture. And so, yeah, we had to combat sexism. And that's not to say it was overcome, but we had a women's commission, you know, that tried to deal with the fact of chauvinism in our lives. Um, you know, I many stories, I have some stories in the book, but yeah, look, you know, not only the struggle against sexism, but the struggles against racial hierarchies, racism uh, within our own communities, you know, was ongoing and is ongoing. And, and, and you then talk about uh, resisting cutbacks, imagining the revolution, and 
it's it would seem to me the 75 to 80 period then you have sort of the the reagan devolution reagan sort of a very conservative neoliberal economics that went into the 90s with all these cutbacks to uh, social programs, health and human services, and 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 you know public public provision of public goods, right? Basically, getting government out of providing for the poorest of the poor and those who are really struggling and privatizing a lot. D- do you see there? You know, I know you mentioned we want to move, get out of this historical amnesia, right? But are there certain similarities in terms of the cutbacks then and the reactions to the cutbacks then, the radicalization and organizing, and the cutbacks in the neoliberal age, globalization, and the current reactions to more empathy, to more of a public concern around public health, and and, and more of a need to, to have the government there to provide for, you know, for, 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 for the whole society, and particularly for those who are struggling and cannot provide for themselves. So I, I, I think there's a bit of a contrast uh, between the uh, neoliberal turn and the impact it had on, you know, mobilizing and the uh, actually, you know, the politics of austerity today that I think uh, is uh, provoking a reaction uh, among large numbers of people. So l- let me explain. I think, you know, if we could just look at the present for a moment, it's similar right now to the mid-70s in that we've, we're confronting a crisis. And just here in New York, we're being um, talked to with the poli- politics of austerity. In other words, even from, you know, uh, you know, a Democratic governor, you know, who's was a very who has been a very strong figure in terms of using the tools of government to combat the pandemic. We're now being told that we have to deal with cutbacks, right? And that's real. You know, they're they're real strains on on the budget, right? But uh, you know, uh, again, the that austerity is supposed to be um, born by working people, right? We're threatened with cutbacks. We're threatened with job losses. We're threatened with cutbacks to school budgets, you know, healthcare crises, you know, layoffs, et cetera, et cetera. And there are two paths we can take, you know. We can succumb to that politics of austerity and, and be fearful and, and say, oh my gosh, you know, we, we, we just have to bear this and we bear it as individuals. Or, you know, we can come together and understand that we can, even with the budget constraints, reprioritize people's needs. Um, in the mid-70s, this phenomenon was a national a conservative fight back that was gaining momentum and power, uh, a, a fight back of, I would say, capitalism of the, you know, of capitalists against the more liberal era of the 30s through the 60s, right? And 
the, of course, you know, capitalism itself was going through, you know, its own transformation. U.S. capitalists, U.S. companies were uh, being challenged by uh, companies from abroad, from Japan and Germany, etc. cetera. Uh, point being that, you know, the uh, way that manifests itself in New York was through this fiscal crisis, in the mid seventies, which was really used as an opportunity to, for the politics of austerity and neoliberalism to, you know, blast social programs, to blame social programs for all of the challenges that, that, uh, we were experiencing economically. Um, so, you know, and, and, and that really made it very difficult. People were, were, concerned about losing jobs and concerned about fighting for the resources uh, it, that their communities had, had gained previously. And so uh, mobilizations, you know, became more difficult, let's say. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually, I mean, through repression, through discrediting movements, through discrediting liberalism, right? Social liberalism. Uh, a lot of these movements dissipated. Now, you know, will they reemerge? I think, you know, we're seeing some of that and hopefully they will gain strength. Fantastic. And you, um, towards the concluding parts of your book, you talk about these uh, cadre dilemmas and specifically that, you know, El Comité you know, was was cold, was not very enthusiastic about engaging in, in, in you know, in electoral politics. Could you speak, you know, a bit to that and sort of some of the decisions around that particular issue of not getting engaged in, in sort of electoral politics? And then uh, how did these dilemmas, were they ever, ever resolved, uh, you know, within the, the, the sort of the political veil committee? So, no, they were not resolved. I would say that the dilemmas outlived the organization. Um, Post-organization, many of the former members uh, became involved in electoral politics. Many, in fact, went to work uh, as Latinos for Dinkins, uh, helped to get David Dinkins elected as the first black mayor of New York City. And, um, you know, the electoral politics dilemma was the fact, the idea that the two mainstream parties in the United States were both represented the interests of the capitalist system, even if one was more inclined to um, you know, promote and advance, you know, slight reforms now and then, right, the Democratic Party, uh, that both essentially, that it was, you know, they were two sides of the same coin. They were both imperialist parties. They were both, you know, parties that had uh, uh, supported U.S. imperialism, U.S. militarism overseas. And um, so they weren't far apart. And so, you know, the idea was to try to pursue an alternative, a more just, a more egalitarian alternative. That has changed. You know, 
uh, as I said, you know, maybe that was short-sighted. Maybe it wasn't. Some of the more radical organizations of that period did participate in electoral politics. Um, as I said, former members of this organization went on to uh, push, let's say, progressive policies within the Democratic Party. And if we jump to today, I think there's a greater understanding in general by progressives of the need to use the systems available uh, to us, um, as well as, you know, uh, the um, more, you know, disruptive protest uh, approach to social change. I think they probably complement one another. You know, you're not going to get much significant change unless the progressives you've elected have are held accountable by people's movements and are pushed, in fact, by people's movements. So I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a wonderful example of a great uh, electoral achievement. And, um, you know, my current work, I mean, you know, uh, I would just say that, you know, my current work is to just try to contribute uh, a thought piece now. I'm working on a manuscript on how two, two, two aspects of social change. One, that labor is still at the center of uh, uh, a system that can bring about, if mobilized, if workers are mobilized, and uh, they are a very powerful sector, right? And potentially powerful sector. You know, it's still in the Marxist tradition uh, of, of really focusing on, you know, the, the potential that working people have to bring about fundamental change in a society. But also the second part of that is how to connect, you know, social movements to one another and how to interact with uh, legislative processes to bring about incremental change and hopefully more fundamental change. And, and how, how, how do you see that happening in, 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 in a post populist or in a populist and, you know, um, political framework? I mean, Trump with all the populism and, and now people seem disillusioned by that. And, like, where, where do you see us going in terms of you, you're organizing the history of the way you've seen things in the past? You know, where, where do you see us in 20, 30, 50 years from now in terms of wh- where's the country going? Is it going to take a dive towards maybe a more uh, p- politics of austerity vein, a more uh, even deeper entrenchment into capitalism? Or is socialism or more of, um, you know, a, a more... Ma- uh, neo-Marxist construction of, of, of government and policy uh, going to take, you know, a deeper route. People are going to start looking at, you know, some of the more radical left-leaning thinking, you know, they're going to take it a bit more seriously. Well, I'm, I'm going to go with Rosa Luxemburg here okay. and say, <laughs> I don't know, but we have several paths. One certainly is barbarism. Right. Uh, You know, and then there are, you know, several more promising and hopeful paths. 
I don't know. You know, all I know is that uh, we have a crisis, you know, an existential crisis uh, with our, uh, on our planet, right? And, uh, you know, if we don't address that, you know, we, um, we just have to keep fighting for uh, people to recognize the seriousness of the challenges that confront us and, you know, for, uh, you know, incremental and even, you know, more fundamental change. You know, I don't know what, what the, the solutions are. I know that we have to find collective solutions that these individual paths, this emphasis on consumerism, the, 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 uh, the, disappearance of collective spaces you know this it it actually brings me back to gentrification in the sense that um you know back in the 70s at least we had place physical spaces where people could go even to enjoy music right you know talk about multiculturalism i mean the opportunities for people to interact you know were tremendous in the 70s in new york today we have increased segregation and fewer and fewer community community spaces. And so we've got to find, you know, the commons, those areas uh, that we can come together and act together, unless I fear uh, that we go down that more um, onerous path. So um, we're coming towards the end of our conversation and uh, we've had an incredible uh, conversation with you. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll ask a traditional final question, you know, here on the New Books Network um, in collaboration with the uh, Gotham Center. Um, I, teach, I teach young people, um, a lot of my students are very disillusioned with uh, the status quo. Uh, the disillusion with the Democratic Party. A lot of them wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders to, you know, as, as an alternative to bring more change, at least some form of radical change. And a lot of them just want to sit home. They're frustrated. They're angry. They say their vote doesn't count. Um, from your history, organizing um, with, you know, these students of color, Latino, African-American, you know, and even a lot of the white students, uh, how do you how do you re-engage them, get them off their cell phones, get them off the iPads, re-engage them and make them feel that they need to understand the political process and all hope is not lost? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, well, you know, again, you know, much longer discussion, I, but I vital it is. I mean, I am constantly, my students um, are all, for, for the most part, are working class students. You know, they are uh, riddled, they have a debt. You know, their families uh, have uh, multiple challenges. Uh, we talk about the conditions all the time. And I emphasize that non-action is allowing those conditions to persist that if we don't hold elected leaders accountable, both at the voting booth and in the streets, that you know we cannot expect any relief, any improvement in our lives. That if we, and history is very, very important. If we look at ev- 
any period of significant change, it is made by social movements, by political movements, often led by young people, working people in the streets, uh, you know, from the workers' strikes, you know, the uh, uh, strikes for, you know, better conditions for safety, uh, to, you know, the fights against apartheid in this country. Uh, None of the changes that we celebrate, none of the reforms that we celebrate were accomplished because somebody, you know, in some ivory tower decided to be nice and, and, and bring us these reforms. They were fought for. And being actionless um, only reinforces, you know, our weakness. But the other thing I would want to say is that uh, they're right about the um, institutions of government, of the political process in this, in this country, makes it very, very difficult to bring about change through the through the electoral process alone, you know the two party system. Uh, Bernie Sanders was you know pushed out of the process um, by you know people who really didn't who were really uh, concerned about the support he had. You know the mainstream of the Democratic Party went all out to um, you know discredit him. But, uh, you know, the two-party system is tough. You know, we don't have a system of proportional representation. That would be better. Um, But we can still fight for those changes. We have to fight for things like proportional representation, for, you know, a greater political space for minor parties, for third-party candidates. And, uh, you know, we need to fight all the systemic uh, problems that we have in the street as well. Yes, thank you so much for uh, for your time, and I really appreciate you uh, sharing with us, you know, uh, this amazing work that you've done. Would you consider a sequel to this um, in uh, 20, 2020? It's been quite some time since you wrote last. It's yeah, on, I mean, this, on, on radical <laughs> imagination, radical humanity. Would would you consider doing a two point version? In yeah, the manuscript I'm working on now, you know, speaks to uh, uh, a little bit more to where we are now. And okay. uh, I hope that will be forthcoming. <laughs> Who knows? Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Muzio. I really appreciate your time. And thank you thank so you. much for being here on the New Books Network uh, in collaboration with the Gotham Center. Uh Listeners, uh, we have been speaking to uh, Dr. Rose Muzio um, about her excellent book on the radical imagination, radical humani- uh, humanity, Puerto Rican political activism in New York. And thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a good evening. <laughs>